And now it's time for We Are Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, and welcome to We Are Just Christians. We're really glad that you tuned into the show today. We appreciate that very much. Hope you can stay with us for the next hour. If you're brand new to the show, to the show this is a live call-in show. And we'll give you the numbers to reach us in just a moment. My name is Mike Schmidt, as you just heard. I'm the preacher, one of the elders of the church here on Savona Boulevard. And Gary Jones, how you doing, Gary? I'm doing great this morning, Mike. Gary's the other host of the show, and uh, he's the other elder in the church. Uh, and uh, you can find our building. for. We'll come back to that maybe at the yeah. corner of California and Savona on the southwest side, just behind the little milk and things and preschool shopping center over there. And and, uh, and so it's the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard, and we'll be glad to have you visit with us. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Got my alarm clock fixed too. Okay. <laughs> yeah. This is this is a live call-in show, as I just mentioned. You can reach us by the usual WPSL numbers, which is seven seven two three four zero fifteen ninety seven seven two three four zero one five nine zero is the number to reach us, and we'll be glad to take your calls. Uh, You can call whether you're a believer or not. We talk about spiritual things. Some of these things have to do with modern churches. Some of the things are more personal, more spiritual, so you're welcome to call. We'd love to hear your perspective, whatever that perspective is, and we promise to have a conversation with you, not just some kind of an argument. You're not being baited or set up here. We'll have a conversation with you. If you can, stay on the air. We'll talk. If not, that's up to you, but... We're going to give you the last word in whatever discussion we have so that you don't feel like or did you not take that advantage of. So that's the parameters of the show. The other thing to remember is sometimes uh, it's easy for us to talk over each other because of the technology we're using, which delays everything by a second or two before we can get back and forth. So if that happens and you get cut off in conversation, it's not intentional. It's just a matter of technology. So we'll try to work our way through that. Anyway, 772-340-1590 is the um, call-in number. If you want to reach us by text message, which some people do, you can reach us by text message. We have two numbers. One's mine, Mike's, and that's 772-260-6120, 772-260-6120. Gary's text number is 772-260-6220. Is his number. You can reach us by text message during the show. We do our best to respond during the show. It may not always be possible to do that, but we try. And uh, you can also text us during the week. Some people just text us during the week about something. And we're, we'd love to have your comments and questions or just things that are on your mind of a spiritual nature. We'd love to hear from you about that. It helps us to have things to use for the show or at least to understand who's listening and why. No. So in any, any event, that's two of the ways you can get a hold of us. This show is available also live on WPSL AM radio, 1590. That may be why most of you are listening. It's also available around the world at, at 9 o'clock Eastern on WPSL.com. You know, you're Greg, they're saying worldwide. Worldwide, well. <laughs> it's worldwide, that's right. So you can go to WPSL.com. Click on the Listen Live button. Tell your friends about that. They can listen to the show, and they could they can participate or text or call in uh, during the show from anywhere they want to call in at, and we can certainly get the get you on the air. So those are a couple of things you can also find us to listen Alexa devices, Google Chrome devices, tune in the TuneIn Radio app under 1590 WPSL. The all those are available for this show. Uh, for you to listen to and your friends to listen to anywhere you are. All right, enough of that. Let's go. Let's get uh, to a couple of other things we want to talk about. And if you want to call in, 772-340-1590 is, uh, is the number to reach us. Now, you know, Gary, we had a question last week. I, I didn't mention this to you. He and I were talking before the show, and, and we don't re- usually rearrange all these topics, you know. But uh, we're talking what do you about mean usually? We almost never. Do. And that's 
somewhat intentional so that we get a fresh perspective on whatever topic comes up. Uh, you're not just getting a pre-rehearsed thing. Uh, the, tr the truth is Gary and I probably generally believe the same things about most topics. We're going to have different perspectives and all that, and sometimes we do disagree. And that's probably the way it should be, and we don't ha have any problem sharing that with you. But I, we got a, a call last week that brought up the subject, or maybe it was a text, I can't remember which, but it brought up the subject of of limb Hades and then also limbo. I think somebody texted in about the subject of limbo. or No, i tell you what happened. Um, I think Jerry, uh, a frequent caller, Jer Jerry called about Hades, and then he hung up, and then later we got a text message, which I really couldn't deal with later in the show, about limbo and what that means. It's an interesting subject. I knew a little bit about it, but I didn't have time to respond last week. So I thought maybe we would uh, look at this idea of Hades again. Because Gary, as you know, over the I've been I've been here with this church as a preacher for since 1995. However many years that is, almost 30 years. And um, over the years, this subject of what happens to you after you die comes up repeatedly over and over and over again. I do lengthy sermons or talks on it, comes up again. You can even go on our website, which is wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com. You'll find at least a couple of different sermons that I did have done over the years on what happens when I die. You'll find sermons related to that on what about Hades or hell? What about angels and demons? You'll find those kind of subjects on that website, wearejustchristians.com, which is a much more uh, structured and in-depth look at some of those subjects than we can do on the radio. But in any event, so I, I want to talk about this because I know it's a subject people have a lot of interest in as to what happens when you die. And there are two general, very broad perspectives from a Christian viewpoint. I'm not even going to deal with the Buddhist viewpoint about this or the atheist viewpoint. I think it was uh, Aldous Huxley, one of those guys said, well, when, when you die, you rot. Pretty much what <laughs> you do. And I think that's probably from an atheist viewpoint or a secular viewpoint. That's pretty much what happens when you're in. That's all that you can't can't happen. And there's, there's no, 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 nothing beyond the, this life. That's why people are so concerned, Gary, about making sure they live as long as they can in that way and making sure they got all the vitamins and exercise and all the other things because this is all they got, one shot at it. Now then, the Christian viewpoint, though, there are two general possibilities. One of them is that when you die, you go, if you're righteous, if you're a good, uh, you're saved, you go straight to the presence of God, you go straight to heaven. And there you're with God and the angels in heaven. Uh, if you're wicked, you go straight to hell. Whatever. Now, there are variations on this, of course. And that's where you get the picture we hear see so often. Well, Uncle Johnny's looking down on the graduation ceremony or the baseball game or the wedding or something. And Grandpa Jones is, you know, do whatever. Because that's the picture that they're up in heaven. They're able to watch the earth and they're able to. And sometimes they, some people's view, they can even come back and visit you. You know, that kind of thing. Now, we're not going to get into all that particularly. But the other viewpoint is that, and we have a caller, but just hang on a second there, a caller, and we'll get to you. I'm going to get the parameter laid out here. The, the, the other viewpoint is that when you die, you go to an intermediate state in between life on earth and heaven in the presence of God, direct presence of God. You go to an intermediate state. So the, the, the spirits of the dead... While their bodies are in the ground, in the earth, buried or dead, the spirits of those people, which is separated at death, the spirits go to an intermediate place, which in the Bible appears to be referred to in Hebrew as Sheol, the place of the dead, or the pit, or Hades in Greek, same parallel words, Hades in Greek, uh, which is the realm of the unseen. Hades even though in English it begins with an H, it really is the word A-video, A-vu, vi, A-vu, Hades. 
So it's a, the unseen, ah meaning not or un, and the other word means to be seen. So it's the place of the unseen dead. So those are the two viewpoints, straight to heaven or to Hades. Now we'll have to come back to this because we have a call. Uh, and I we well just one comment. If, if you want to, the the most definition I think we get for that spirit world is in the basically the story, and it's not. I don't perceive it to be a uh, parable, but the story of rich man and Lazarus. So. The latter part of Luke 16, beginning about verse 19. Luke 16, 19 and following is where Jesus tells the story of two people, rich man and Lazarus, what happens when they die. It isn't told. It, the main part of the story isn't to, show, to give a detailed explanation of life after death, but it does. It, it, uh, it can, among, among other things, there are a lot of scriptures that give you details about things that are not the primary subject. The real point of Jesus' <laughs> parable story there is be careful how you live. Right. That's the main point of it. Yeah. Well, let's take the phone call and then we'll come back to this. Uh, are you there, Jerry? Uh, good morning, Mike. Good morning, Gary. Uh, thank you for taking my call. And uh, thank you for addressing the question of limbo. Uh, meaning the same thing as purgatory uh, in Roman Catholicism. So that was one if you get a chance uh, this morning uh, in the, the Hebrew Hebrew religion uh, when when they get married the bride dances around the groom seven times and can we assume that meant in the Old Testament they use the word Hebrew instead of seven times when they're married. Uh, I assume it's something that goes back to uh, the Old Testament. And I'd like to listen off air, Mike, if that's okay. That's fine, Jerry. I, uh, I didn't I get the comparison you. word he made, though. Hold on. You're, you're, uh, it was getting a little bit of feedback. <laughs> Gary has a question for you, Jerry. Hang on one second. He was talking about a word, and it was compared to another word, and we missed the second one, and I can't... Um, you said that the, in the Hebrew... What's your question about the wedding again, about the bride dancing around the groom? Oh, Jerry, Jerry. I think up. he's gone. Okay, so that's okay. okay. We'll, we'll we'll clarify that if we can. Um, well, let me deal with this wedding thing first, and then we'll okay. come back to the limbo, because we're going to talk about that. But um, th there are various customs that we know of from the Bible times. Now listen carefully what I'm saying. Various customs from Bible times that we know of from records and, and writings and so forth. Some of those have come down into the modern era. Others did have not. But and Jewish weddings, even in the Old Testament, apparently were very different than quote unquote Christian weddings. The only thing some you can, of those are not in the Bible at all. Right. right, these are not in the Bible at all, so we have no idea what God said about it. And the, and the Bible doesn't specify any kind of wedding ceremony at all. Exactly. It doesn't scripturally. There just isn't any wedding ceremony in the Bible. I know people expect me as a minister to do weddings, and I do weddings, but I don't have any scriptural guidance on what the vows ought to be. What should be said? What should who should stand next to who? Whether you can see the bride before the wedding, whether she should wear white. I have no scriptural guidance about any kind of ceremony. So whatever ceremony that we do, uh, that I do as a preacher or a person does in the, in the clerk of court chambers, is purely for human understanding. All right, Jerry's on the phone again. So let's, let's <laughs> okay. okay. Thanks for calling back, Jerry. So it, I just want to clarify your question about the the, the Hebrew bride or groom. Are you there? He got disconnected. Well, this isn't fun. <laughs> okay, we call back again, Jerry. We want to make sure that we're at, we were getting feedback. And so I was just trying yeah, to. Yeah, a good, good part of that question was killed in the feedback. And G Gary and I both have poor hearing, so we're trying our best. But well, I hear the feedback really I, well. <laughs> yeah, the feedback is at a frequency I can hear, apparently. That's how that works. But 
there's no guidance from the Bible about what I should say or not say in a wedding ceremony. So I base my wedding ceremonies on the scriptures that talk about marriage, God's role in that, how men and women ought to act with each other, and on all that kind of thing. That's how, and I base and I base the vows that I've written on various scriptures, not on just common customs. So, well, it's the same but thing. But I have no Bible yeah. direction for what to say. It's the same thing we run into in many other subjects, Mike. All all the Bible says is it's a covenant, which it's a series of promises, and that we see some of the things in description, the result of what that covenant is. So therefore, we have to go back and understand maybe what those promises were from the result. Right. So so I don't think there's any. And that same thing is true both in Old and New Testament. So the, the custom of a bride dancing around the groom seven times is a Hebrew custom that men made up, and it hasn't been a universal custom for Hebrews, Jews, down through the centuries at all. It's, a, it's used in some places, some centuries, not in others. The custom of them drinking wine and crushing the glasses, as you see, that's completely a man-made custom or getting married under a canopy. Now, they, these are all symbolic things. I'm not saying I'm not saying that they're bad. I'm saying they're simply symbolic things that humans have devised to try to represent what Gary's saying. Here are the words of scripture about merit, the marriage of vows and covenant. And then we do these other things to kind of emphasize those things or to make a well, today. A new custom is to um, take two different colored glasses of sand and pour them together during the middle of the ceremony. So the sand, two different colors all mixed together into one goblet. So you have two empty. So this is, this is a, is this in the Bible? Not at all. Is the idea of two lives intertwined, intermixing, becoming one. Is that in the Bible? Yes. Yes. That's in the Bible. So we do these kind of things, but I can't say God says pour sand in a glass or light a candle or wear white or do under a canopy or smash glasses uh, and so now I will say this, and I got it somewhere. In my, I don't think I don't know if I have it with me or not. I have to look at my briefcase here. Um, well, the, mo- the most specific thing that God says is in Malachi 2, verse 14, the last two lines of the verse. He says, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. That is that is as specific as it gets. Well, they become one flesh. Yeah. And so the whole thing is being one that there's there's just a. Uh, but that doesn't tell you what kind of ceremony. They have. I don't think anybody needs to have a ceremony one way or the other. Now, that doesn't mean they should just live together and be married. The ceremony. Right. Um, I was going to say, first of all, before we change it there a little bit. It is true that in the Hebrew weddings, traditionally going way back, that the bride is not the center of attention in the wedding. That's an American custom or a Western custom. In the Hebrew wedding, the groom or bridegroom is the center of the wedding. He is the most important figure in the wedding. Now, that fits the biblical picture of Christ as the bridegroom who is coming back for his bride, the church. And there is a ceremony is coming later, you know, eschatologically at the end of time and so forth, the wedding of the bridegroom to the bride, as it were. And of course, there's different figures up there and all this. Now then, so that's the main thing that's different about Hebrew weddings from old times and American weddings is that we don't, they didn't have any bridezillas back then. I don't know if Gary knows what a bridezilla is. It's, these young brides today are unbelievable in their demands because they're more interested, it seems, in the ceremony of the wedding than they are about the marriage. And I've noticed this. I've been saying that my wife laughs because she knows how long I've been saying this about things that that uh, more more people are interested in the wedding than they are the marriage. And my old saying long ago, and now there's research to back it up, is that the more elaborate and expensive the wedding, the shorter the marriage. And, and that, that, that's a rule of thumb that I've used for well, 40 some years in doing weddings. Anecdotally, that's just what I've observed. Yes, because the focus is on the wedding and the beautiful bride and all the elaborate ceremonies and not doing this and doing and this. And not the marriage. Blue, but not, not on what you're really doing. Which is the marriage. Some of the, the people marriage? I've known that have been married 70 years, they got married at a clerk's 
uh, house or in somebody's living room and they didn't have a ceremony went home to their parents house you know uh, there was nothing uh, but they their marriage has lasted for 60 70 years so in any event that's one thing um now i forgot what the other thing was but let's go back to get, his question was here's the text i got from the radio station he asked in the hebrew religion is it still customary for the bride to dance around the groom seven times i don't know the answer to that question today and here's the reason why i would say yes but how many questions can you answer with yes but <laughs> or no but but i would say this there are so many different kinds of Jews, as it were, and different customs in different cultures where Jews live. Jews live all over the world, and they maintain a separate culture to some degree. Well, Jews but, but Jews that grew up in Russia are going to be somewhat different from Jews that even grew up in Germany or France. Sure. There's the Ashkenazi <laughs> Jews and the Sephardic Jews, you know, and that, <laughs> that's a, the biggest difference. Let, let me see if I can, uh, let me see if I can ask Siri what this is, but I don't know the answer off the top of my head. One, one of the things that I would say from Scripture, though, that appears that the marriage, the resulting marriage or the things that went on prior to the marriage were extremely important to the Jews. Those things were important, that they be observed and that they do these things and that the marriage was proper. Whatever that was through their tradition, it seems to be to them that that was very important. At least that's my observation from well, I what I've read. Right. And here's what I was going to say. Now, you remind me what I was going to say. By the way, according to several websites, yes, traditionally the, the bride circles the groom seven times as an acknowledgment of the domain that they share as kind of spiritual container to hold them still. Many couples honors the ancient tradition of seven bridal circles. Some choose to have the bride complete four circles corresponding to the four matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, and the groom to do three for the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there's all variations on this. But it, once again, not, none of that is a uh, none of that is in the Bible at all. Now, here's what I, I was going to say about this. Uh, I think I can remember it. These these marriage customs. Look, the wedding is the wedding, the actual marriage, I should say, is a covenant that you make between you and your spouse, bride or groom and God. It's a covenant you make with God in in the biblical sense. It's a three way covenant. Right. And then but the wedding is for everybody else. One of the one of the laws of the Old Testament was that, that after the, the marriage the bride and groom would retire to their tent, and then the next morning they would hang out the sheets from that night, uh, ho hopefully with blood on them as a token of virginity, and they would the whole pub, all their friends and neighbors would see this to know. So, the, but the point is, we have weddings historically, and I think biblically, to to acknowledge the fact that here are two young people who are separate lives, and they move in together. They're going to move in together. And so people need to know, are they moving in as a husband and wife, or are they just, as we would say, shacking up, that's what my mother would call it. Which one's going on here? Well, the wedding is a public acknowledgement and a witness to all your friends and neighbors. Yes, we intend to stay together. We intend to be together. We're going to be a married couple. We're going to bring forth offspring in this union, and we want all of you to know about this, and we want all of you to honor this relationship. And we want all of you to encourage us and help us in this relationship. That's what the wedding is for. It's for everybody else. The, the actual vows you take are with God. Okay. Now, you may do them in front of witnesses, but the witnesses are just affirmed that, yes, they made a vow before God. They're going to live together, and they're going to be husband and wife. Now, today, all those things, Gary, for most people are completely a sham. They don't have any, they don't take any vow before God. The vow they take should read, as long as I desire to stay with this person, they make me happy, I will. That's pretty much the extent. As long as I feel like staying with this person, I'll do it. And as soon as I don't feel like staying with this person, they don't make me happy, I won't do it. That's what the vow is. What kind of vow is that? You can make that same vow about a football team. As long as they win, I'll be with them. As long as they start losing, I won't be with them, you know. 
Well, it, it's like it's like we said before. Basically, Malachi two says it's a covenant. It's a series of promises. It's agreements that you make, and you make them before God, and you say, "I'm going to keep them." But here, here now that's but the public ceremony has nothing to do with right, it. Yeah, right. But the only way we can have any clue as to what's in that one example is Romans seven. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from her law of her husband, so that if while her husband lives, she marries another, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from law, so she is no adulteress though she has married another. That defines at least one thing that's in that comp. Okay? God expects that part of that covenant to be agreed to. So we know that. That's all. That's, that's, and we, we find out. You know, when I stand up and do a wedding for somebody, Gary, I don't have any idea that that's happening. Okay, right. No one can. Because you should, only the two people know that. Well, if they even when when Sharon and I's wedding was done, that idea of until death do you part was part of what we promised. Well, I know, but nobody really knows if you mean it or not until you do it. Right. And that doesn't mean anything to anybody, but it should. I mean, I do weddings all the time, and that business of life, the lifelong thing is an integral part of it. But but the question is, what scriptural knowledge do we have? of what should be done at a wedding, and we just don't have very much, of anything. There, there's anything to be said. It doesn't tell me to say it. It's like a baptism. I know I'm supposed to baptize and immerse people for the remission of their sins based on their confession of faith in Christ and their repentance. What should I say when I baptize somebody? People ask, well, well I've, I've had a, my back's been injured for the summer. I had surgery and stuff. So it's been difficult for me to for a while, and possibly get them down the steps and go into the baptistry and then to bend down and baptize me. And we had several people that, that desired to be baptized this summer and fall. And so a couple of the other men here were helping me with that or doing that. Nothing says I have to do it anyway. And they want to know what should they say? Well, what does the scripture say should be said at a baptism? It says nothing about what should be said. Well, the only the only thing you can even guess at from that is the instruction that Jesus gave to his apostles, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Acts 2, they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Right. I, don't, yeah. I, said, I don't know what you want to say, but here's the thing. Once again, what you say is not for God. God already knows, that person already knows whether they've actually repented and they want to confess Christ. They're going to confess to this audience here that they believe that Jesus is God's Son. You as a you as the one who's doing the baptizing, it's probably a good thing for you to say what you're doing. Why are you doing this? Just so everybody knows, this me dipping this person in this water is not just some kind of freak show. I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what I say usually. And that's what I told them. Say something like that. It's just so the audience knows what you're doing. And it, it, it gives a sort of significance. Does the Bible tell me to say that? It doesn't. And so there have been debates over the what they call the baptismal formula, Gary. Yeah, but basically what you're saying, I think, is correct. No one knows, and God has chosen not to know, that really is that a real baptism until you have lived a life and bore fruits of baptism. Well, God knows if you mean what you're doing. Yeah. You do, hopefully. And and in the end, that baptism begins the process, but you can short-circuit that process whenever you choose to and, and go walk away from Christ. That's up to you. But you, the audience now knows how to treat you. My point is that the people in the audience know to treat you. Now that person has made a vow and – made a claim and was buried in Christ in baptism that puts them into Christ and makes them my brother and sister, makes them amenable to all the laws and, and ordinances of Christ and to share all the blessings of being in Christ. And so that's something that can be known. Well, I'm, I'm going to say something that's maybe a little bit of a sidetrack here, but I think it's important. Mike. We ask, we, we, talk about the things that need to be done. One needs to believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he was buried, that was crucified, dead and buried and raised the third day. We need to know that we believe those things. We also need to know that 
basically they've confessed with their mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Also, that they have repented of their past life and intend to live a new life. Now, whether or not repentance is basically going to be a reflection of your faith in God, your real belief in God, and God expects us, and he shows us in the Scripture, he expects to see our faith by the things that we do. And that's extremely important in all of this. And that would be shown to others because they can see the same thing. Yes. Uh, when he says in when he says in John, I think it's John chapter three, I don't remember the verse. Maybe you remember the verse, but he says the wind blows where it will, but you don't know where it goes or where it comes from. So is one who is born of the spirit. Basically, what he's saying is you don't know what the spirit of someone is doing until you see the result of it. And that's what you do. And there are many other scriptures that indicate he wants to see our faith. And so that it's a witness between you and God, but also it is for the other people who are observing this. So they know what your relationship to them is, whether now you become a Christian, which they hate and they can persecute you for that, or whether you become a Christian and you're a brother or sister and they know how to treat you because now you're a brother or sister. And so you, you do you do these ceremony type things, but the Bible doesn't give any direction. And so as a clergyman, quote unquote, I don't have any instructions about a baptismal formula, what I'm supposed to wear and all the other accoutrements that people, human tradition adds to it. It's much simpler than that. Stop. People try to complicate it, and that excludes people from doing it. And in some ways, Gary, I can't help but think that the clergy, so to speak, like to make these rules that exclude all the people that aren't part of the union, you know. <laughs> all the non-union employees get to stay away, and only the union members can do these important things and get paid for it. I'm a little cynical with that way. Now, we had a text, by the way, from Ken. Well, I, I just want to say one more one more scripture, Ephesians 5, verse 22, and I want everyone listening to go and read through about verse Ephesians 5, verse 22, through about 33 or 34. There is one other set of verses that kind of tell you what a husband and wife. It's not a wedding. It's not a wedding. It's not, not about the wedding. No, it's not the wedding, and it's not the ceremony, but it's the result of that. It's the result of those things. And that's the only way we have of knowing what what is really agreed to between you, your wife, and God. The longest passage in the Bible about marriage is there in Ephesians 5. Yeah. The most extensive ones, extensive passage about that. Now, um, that the other the, day I did a wedding vow renewal, and I say this at every wedding. So I, I think I might have mentioned before. I asked this couple, they were looking at me, I said, so um, – I'm not going to ask you today, because I talked about love and all these things. I'm not going to ask you today, I said, whether you love one another. I'm going to ask you today, will you love one another? So do you see the difference in those two yeah. things? Will you love one another is what God expects. That's an action that you can take. It's a, it's a series of things that you do, and it's a, it is determined by your what you actually want to do. Do you love one another is just a reflection of a temporary feeling oftentimes. And that's not, not what the Bible pictures as part of the marriage, the temporary feeling or rush of uh, hormones or whatever it might be. Now, now Ken texted in this. He texted in Scripture, Gary. Uh, Jeremiah 31.22. Jeremiah 31.22. Which says, a woman shall encompass a man. No explanation of this, so you can make your own interpretation Three or seven times are the most common. He's saying that. So the Jews, if he's saying the Jews apparently apply this verse to a wedding, the amplified version suggests the new thing is women protecting the man. I have a completely different. What's that verse? Reference? Jeremiah 31, 22. 22. Okay. Here's what it says. How long will you gad about? He's talking about Israel. You backsliding daughter. For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. I think that's a messianic prophecy, especially given the rest of the stuff in this chapter. I think it's a messianic prophecy. 
Israel, the nation of Israel at that time, was backsliding and wicked and fallen idols. And God was saying, I'm going to give you a new covenant early in this chapter, not according to the covenant I made with Israel. Actually, it's just a little further down. After that, after that. And he says, I'm going to get, but I'm going to create a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. I think that's a reference to Christ being in the womb of Mary and being brought forth as the Savior. A new, brand new thing never happened before. Now, um, so the, the Jews, not believing this is messianic or believing the Messiah, perhaps, it, it really means to revolve around, to border, using various applications, uh, you know, to, all that kind of stuff. Now, now that might not be the correct interpretation because it's a prophecies are hard to detect until you see them later. Yeah. They're often open to more than one possible set of meanings given the, the language. But it's just as easy. This is a messianic prophecy. And I certainly don't think that this is a passage about a wedding ceremony directly. I may be too literal in my thinking. Seems to me it's it was, not saying I'm going to change the wedding ceremony you're doing, you Jews. You're you're such a terrible nation of wicked, immoral, idolatrous people. I think what you need is a change of wedding ceremonies. I think you need now the bride to circle the groom seven times, and that'll solve your problem. I'm going to give you something new to do. <laughs> that's a that's a crazy. Um, now I'm not I'm not I appreciate I'm not making fun of what Ken said. I appreciate that information because I have not associated that verse with. That custom. Maybe that's where it comes from. To be honest with you, when I read this verse, I was thinking of Isaiah 65 and 66. What's that? The new name. The, the new heavens and the new earth. Well, he, a woman shall encompass a man. Oh, he is going to create a new thing in the earth. Uh, and um, but I don't know that it would be a stretch to me to get a wedding ceremony out of this, although. In fairness, wedding ceremonies often are broader than you said. You don't have any scriptures what to do with a wedding ceremony. You have to get some broad. Well, I, and I also and I also thought of part this one. Uh, basically, part of Isaiah uh, Jeremiah thirty one thirty one. He says, "I uh, I shall make a new covenant with the house of Judah." not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. Uh, he he keeps relating these covenants back to that. I know, but I don't the par- see any the par- in Jeremiah 31 particularly, but I guess you're saying it's because it's later he, on he mentions a covenant. But- he, he mentions being a husband to them, and he's covenants and... And husbands and wives kind of seem to go together because of the importance and the and the nature of that covenant that is all encompassing in that relationship, or at least that's to, to me. But now the, the ESV says a woman encircles a man. That's a different rendering than encompasses or encircles a man. Uh, so that's an interesting one. Let's see what the New American Standard said. Encompass. That's the typical one yeah. uh, that you get. Uh, and I don't. I only have a, the King James. Where's the King James? King James. Encompass uh, a man. Compass meaning go around. I would think you go there. But in any event, uh, that's an. I appreciate Ken. Appreciate you sending that in because that's a new one for me to think about, and I have to give it some thought as far as that goes. But in any event, this is. Um, I don't know, since I've been a very young man in my early 20s and speaking about marriage and what it means to be married and what the Bible says about ceremonies, because I've had to think about that being a minister all these years and doing dozens, if not hundreds of weddings, not hundreds, but maybe over 100 wedding ceremonies. I had to think about this, and my view of this is just – just uh, causes people to frown because they've got this view that God laid out all the things you're supposed to say at a wedding and you're supposed to do this and that and the other. People got so bent out of shape when on our wedding day, early we're getting married in the evening. I took 
Judy out to breakfast at the place that we met. Our first date. I took her out to the restaurant where we had our first date. Oh, you and we had breakfast together. You saw her on the day oh, of the wedding. Freak out. Now, see, knowing me, they knew <laughs> that I did that on purpose, and they were correct. I did that on purpose because those kind of old superstitions and customs are a bunch of garbage. And and uh, they may be nice, but to to just get uh, get freaked out because the bride sees the groom sees the bride is silly. It's silliness. It mar- weddings and marriages are much more serious than that, and and they ought to be treated that way. So I, I've had a hard time. So I guess I had this uh, few. What is a wedding for? Since the Bible doesn't tell me much about it, it's telling me. Well, what it does say is, you know, your friends and neighbors need to know that you're married. That's what the Old Testament showed you, and that's it. Well, see, so you can do that. You can do that a lot, a lot of ways. Stepping over a broom, whatever they do, you know. Well, to be honest with you, Mike, Sharon and I talked about marriage, and and essentially made the agreements between ourselves before we ever had the ceremony. Well, that has to that has to be true. You shouldn't come to me to get married until you you've decided that's what you're going to do. Now you want to make it public. That's all you've decided. But but we we now made, you want to make it public. We made an agreement that basically there were roles that we would have, and that it was going to be forever. It was going to be until one of us died. That was and that was basically the commitment that we made to each other, and that was worked out well before the ceremony. Well, that's what. That's exactly what it is. We had we had a long conversations about this whole thing, and I'd already decided that she was the kind of woman that would be be a good wife, and that I wanted to spend my life with before I asked her to marry me in the first place. And then we talked about this afterward. So that decision to get married was made by her and I. Um, we I don't know what would have taken to change our minds about that, but we told our families, and we set a date in a couple of months after that. They wanted me to wait into the summer and I said no way and so we had this ceremony a couple months later and that was that the ceremony was very small you know we you know we had our wedding gary to these a lavish meal we had uh, uh p- canned peanuts and mint <laughs> and a cake so we really went all out for our friends I and mean, a couple hundred friends came I mean there's a bunch of people and um anyway since I saw Judy on the wedding day Day and took her out to breakfast. Our marriage was pretty to some of those old ladies. Our marriage was pretty much doomed. So I'm still waiting 49 years later for that <laughs> hammer to fall. But our marriage is doomed because I saw her on our wedding day. Well, how, how silly! How silly! Well, anyway. the things that we talked about, the things we had basically because I was in school and hadn't finished college, we had to agree to a role reversal. She went out and went to work, and I went to school, and that lasted for two years, and I wasn't happy about it. It isn't very healthy, but it, but if you have the right commitment, it can make it. We we agreed that's what we were going to have to do if we were going to marry at that point in time, and so that's part of what we agreed to do, and it it worked. In texted in, the first thing I thought of was quote a wife's desire will be to her husband. Now, that's from Genesis 3. And so I think that may be that's kind of where and you, you said it another way that I'm saying it is this a woman shall encompass a man. He's speaking to them like and this is a kind of a combination of what Gary's saying about this, that in the chapter Jeremiah 31, he's putting forth a new covenant. One of the one of the symbols of the covenant that God made with Israel was a marriage of a bride and a groom, God being the husband. And he's saying something new is going to happen. Combine that with my messianic view of this, that in the future, God's true bride will desire her husband. Israel doesn't desire God. They've walked away from their husband. In the future, the church, Christ, right. the church will be, have a desire for Christ because you can't become a Christian in the other way than to desire it. You could become a Jew just by being born. You can't become a Christian unless you intentionally select it. And so that goes back to this whole uh, beginning part of the of God's connection. M- marriage is not something separate. And then God decided to use 
um, God decided to use a that as an illustration. Hang on a second here. My my text messages are all. I did something and started dictating into a text box everything <laughs> I was saying to send back to poor Ken. But God didn't make marriage. And then, oh, you know what? That'd be a good illustration for my relationship to the church or something. Yes. What came first was God's knowledge and foreknowledge of his relationship with the people he wanted to save and what kind of relationship that would be. It would be a marriage type relationship among others, as well as a king and all the others. And so he created marriage. And when he made man, he made that relationship that would show man what it's like to be close to God. Marriage is to make you a better person, not to make you happy. Marriage is to bring you closer to a person, another person outside of yourself, to show commitment and sacrifice to that person and true love. And that teaches you then about God. That's the Ephesians 5 passage. Yes, it's the this mystery is great, but I speak in respect to Christ and, and the church. church. And I think this passage in Jeremiah, the whole chapter, including this passage in verse 22, is part of that. So I appreciate Ken bringing that up. And and that new thing reminded me of Isaiah 65, 17. Well, for, it, it, it's for all behold, new, yeah, yes. before behold, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Right. He says that twice, and he says it in Isaiah 66 toward the end of that passage. He uses almost the same words. But it, what's in between is in many ways messianic. You know, Gary, I, feel, I, I agree with you about that. You know, Gary, I feel so much better because Ken – texted back a very biblical affirmation to me. He texted back bingo. <laughs> you know, I feel so so good in what I just said because I've got Ken agreeing. But any event, think about that. It's a it is a big mystery. It's a big thing that's being talked about. And for modern people, especially those who call themselves Christians, to take marriage so lightly is a shameful, shameful thing because it, it speaks to their concept of God and all kinds of other things. And it's why, well, I, I keep, why people can't find peace and happiness in the world. Well, I don't remember the reference, but I keep thinking of when Jesus told the apostles about the rules for divorce and remarriage, their comment was, you know, if this is the way it is with a man and a woman, it's better not to marry. I mean, they realized this was something else, something well, I quite different. I can tell you now that, that of all the things that I, the only th- the, the, the best or most important thing that I have done in my entire life is staying married to my wife for nearly half a century than a year. You've been married more than a half a century. Going on 50. That's the most important thing that I have done or will ever do because of what that represents between me and God and me and her, me and our children and grandchildren. It represents something powerful and meaningful, and it's cost me. It, her and I have both paid a heavy price individually to stay married to one another and to love each other to this very day. And and I think in the way that God intended her being a wife as God intended me, being a husband as close as I can to what this is, is extremely important. The world takes it for granted or just shoves it aside. We think being a content creator on YouTube is an important thing to do or being a politician, or being a rich man, having a business, or, or being a boss babe. You know, all the, those things are trivial compared to the price you have to pay. Sharon and I are happily married to someone for 50 years. Sharon and I are less than a year from being 56 years. Right, right. And that that requires a tremendous, now, uh, people say, well, are, are you happy? Well, yeah, you're happy. Yes. It's a different thing. There, there's a whole different there's a whole different ballgame. You know, I, no, I, feel, I think the, even if you aren't happy, you've done this and you've done what God says. There's tremendous value in this. Were we happy every minute of the time? No. Do we have any regrets about what we did for me? No. Yes. That, that, that's, that's the most honest way that I can share. Sure. Because that's what it is. Now, so this then teaches you uh, self-sacrifice teaches you what it really means to love another person, teaches you about God, what he's had to put up with you 
with you. Well, no, it, it, it teaches you everything that you need to know to be a decent human being if you pay attention. It's supposed to teach you not only love, it's supposed to teach you patience, it's supposed to teach you humility. All of those things that you're going to need. They all are, are, are by love, but I get you're right. Yeah. All the things you need, they're the fruits of the spirit are there in marriage if you want it and so forth. But most of the time, ma- most marriages, in my experience in doing counseling and other things, there's from from word one, even before the marriage, before the wedding, there is a competition to see who will be in control of that marriage. And that's already been settled by God, by the way. God already settled that issue, but we don't believe that. So it's a struggle to see who will get their way so that they can be happy. And by that means fulfill my fantasy of what I want my life to be. Those marriages can't work. They cannot succeed. And and they don't succeed over time. And and that's the hard part. That, and that's why uh, what got the apostle said, well, this is a case. What, what you got to stay with a woman no matter what. Well, then. First you know, Corinthians seven, the first few verses, you got to realize basically the weapon the woman has is sex. And if she uses that as a weapon, it's going to be almost impossible. If he uses, he misuses that that responsibility. It, it brings up her rights. First in that passage, much less his rights. The first one he mentions is the husband is the husband withholding the due affection from the wife. So it goes both direct. It's a mutual passage because both people have to submit to that. Well, anyway, I, I just think that there's that's what's missing in the general happiness of so many people. Now, this is not to say that if you never marry, that. You're not a good person or a Christian. You are just as saved and just as much of a Christian as anybody else. But even those people who remain single are pushed by the scriptures to look at marriage and see it for what it is, not to dishonor. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, Hebrews 13. Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the bed undefiled. So I ought to hold true marriage in honor. Everybody needs to, whether they're single or whether they're married or whatever they may be, or divorced or widowed. Uh, and the bed should be undefiled. The sexual part of marriage should be not, not degraded, not held in contempt, as the Catholic Church does. And it's only for procreation. Other people think it's dirty. It's to be held in honor. So anyway, we've got a bunch of sermons there. I don't want to do that. <laughs> All right. Um, let me go back. So what what are we going to do for 13 more minutes? Well, we we got to we got to go back to our question about limbo from the beginning, and I've only got eight minutes or so, but um, I've, I've got I've got is, yeah. I've got pretty close to 12. 9:52, 40 is what I've got for time. Yeah, that's pretty close. All right. Anyway, we're going to get a message here from Ray at the station to be clarifying this, but I'm looking <laughs> right at and a clock that's set by you know the internet anyway <clears throat> well i'm, I'm assuming we, we got to be off the air by what 10 o'clock well i was thinking 35 seconds before 10 well, o'clock okay um, seven minutes left okay that's okay so in other words we sit pick these two alternatives about the afterlife at what happened after death one you go straight to heaven the other one you go to a an intermediate place that's going to last until the resurrection now, in Catholic theology, they introduce purgatory, which is not in the Bible. In the, and if you read about it in Catholic literature, it will give you a reference to the book of Maccabees, which is not in the Old Testament. The Jews never considered Maccabees, which is part of the Apocrypha, to be inspired. And so the Jews who it was written for, it was their history, did not claim it to be inspired. But somehow the Catholic Church can figure this out. If, once it once they get a doctrine of purgatory from it, they can figure it out. I, I've read those books, and basically, Mike, they are even the unpracticed in what I'll call literary criticism. Those are different books. They're not written like no. Now they contain Bible information. They they contain good historical. But is it like the other Bible books? No, they're not. No, they're not. Anyway, that's my point. There, yes. So anyway, you have this place called purgatory, which is where you go to get rid of venial sins 
or that you're still on your soul or original sin because you haven't said enough masses or paid enough in indulgences and you don't have a plenary indulgence to get out of there. So you got to go to purgatory and suffer for a while to have your sins purged from you to purgatory. And then after a while, if enough masses are said for you, enough money is paid and you you can get an indulgence to get out of purgatory and go to heaven. Now, in Catholic theology, there is this place along in purgatory called limbo. And limbo is from the Latin word for edge, limbus, an edge of something or a boundary, as as it were, the edge of hell. But there are some people that are in purgatory, but they're right on the edge of hell, ready to go to heaven. You know, they're on the edge. That's the idea. And so this is a condition in the afterlife of those who die in original sin without having been assigned to the hell of the damned. Okay. And so there's three parts to this, three parts to Hades, to the Catholic. Now, I don't believe in these things, so don't, if you're listening, be careful. I'm only describing them. There is the hell of the damned. There's the limbo of the fathers or patriarchs, and there's the limbo of the infants. The limbo of the fathers is an official doctor of the Catholic Church, but the limbo of the infants is not. So the idea of the limbo comes from the idea that in the case of the limbo of the fathers, good people were not able to achieve heaven because they were born before the birth of Jesus Christ. So anybody who was born before the birth of Jesus Christ is in the limbo of the patriarchs. And they have a chance to go to heaven, but they don't automatically go. That's what the Catholic Church believes. And then there's the limbo of the infants. And that's because uh, the limbo of the infants is they're not there either because a child may have died before baptism. The baby dies before it's baptized. Then it goes to the limbo of the infants. They don't deserve punishment, though they cannot achieve salvation independently. And so some people say there's three, the limbo of the infants, the limbo of the patriarchs, but this is what it is. Now, there's all kind of different teaching about this, and that's the general. My impression is that none of this is in Scripture. None of this is in the Scripture at all. Uh, The Scriptures teach that the blood of Christ was was an overarching blood sacrifice that those Jews and other people who kept the law that God gave them, whether Gentiles keeping the law that God gave them or Jews who kept the law, when Christ died, his blood covered all those people and kind of rolled back over them. And we go into that and we don't have time this morning to go back into that. And then those who are infants do not have sin because they are without sin because sin comes not because you have original sin or depraved or depraved, but because you sin. Because That's you why sin. you're a sinner, because you sin. And therefore, you don't need if you're an infant, you don't need the blood of Christ. You're simply you're not saved. You're simply safe because you've never been lost. You can't be saved until you're lost. So infants are not saved. They're simply safe. They have not any condition of being lost. Now, that's what I think the scriptures teach about that. And those those people, when they die, yes, they're in Hades, the realm of the dead. They're either going to be, depending on their obedience or disobedience to Christ, or their condition of being safe, either in torment or in paradise. The Bible presents two conditions, torment or paradise. And so you have to you have to put everybody in one of those two places. There's no edge of paradise that's talked about. This is simply because people start trying to read. Gary, it's because people try to put in the Bible what's not there. They're not satisfied to leave the secret things to God or to not go beyond the scriptures. And so they have to figure out all these things in great detail and then create a church doctrine about it. Okay. It's like the wedding thing about saying, since God said, you know, you need to be married, now then we create a church liturgy that has to be said, and certain words have to be said before you – it's like the Catholic Church. A uh, man uh, – all these weddings and all that stuff were deemed illegitimate because a priest kept using a one wrong word in the in the thing he said about these marriages. One wrong word made them all invalid for 30 years going back. Now, what's the Bible say about that? That's got nothing to do with what the Bible would say. 
All right. Well, our time is gone today. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Tune in again next week to We Are Just Christians. Look at our website, wearejustchristians.com, and come and visit us, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard here in Port St. Louis. We'd be glad to have you, 10 o'clock this morning, 11 o'clock, and 7.30 on Wednesday night. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you. You've been listening to We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie on WPSL Port St. Lucie.